everyone, this is Faith Is, and I am Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm so glad you've chosen to spend a little time here on this program where we develop each other's faith, where we stretch toward God's high calling, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And here we are on the first weekend of a new year. Can you believe it? We have a whole new blank slate before us. We often think about it that way, don't we? We think about all the possibilities and all the hopes and dreams. We talk about how the old year needs to go. We're kind of fed up with what happened there or we're frustrated or just tired of some of the things. And we're hopeful that the new year will be different. And so we think about happy new year and we wish each other well and we celebrate. We have to remind ourselves to write the correct year for a while until we get used to it. It's all those good things but it's a new year. And so we need to think about how we're going to live going forward. And one of the things I like about our time together is we can just talk. Uh, I don't have to twist your arm and you don't have to listen to what I say. I hope you will. And I hope you find value in it because we do this for the benefit of the people who listen. We don't do this just to be doing it. We really hope it helps. And and when I think about how to put a program together, I think about, can I help you? Is this going to be useful? Is this going to build up your confidence? Is this going to, to inspire you to stretch toward God? Is this going to answer some of your questions? We want to help each other on this journey of faith. And so that's what we're doing. We're having these kinds of conversations. We're thinking about the new year this week. We're going to think about several things with the new year. And one of the things that we do at our church, and yes, I am the pastor of a local church, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. That's Southwest Florida. A lot of people don't know where Cape Coral is, but if you know where Fort Myers is, we like to say, well, I like to say Fort Myers is that small, insignificant city across the river from us. Because Cape Coral is, depending upon who's measuring and how they're counting, and I'm not ever quite sure how they figure all this, but at any rate, Cape Coral is either the second or third largest city geographically in the state of Florida. It's a big area. And I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church, and we do these programs for you, and I appreciate my church and their support. And one of the things that we do as we come up to a new year, and we've done this for a number of years, is we participate together in the John Wesley Covenant Service. Now, you may never have heard of the John Wesley Covenant Service. You've probably heard of John Wesley. He was the minister in England years ago that started the Methodist movement, and he really sparked a revival and really saved the nation from great turmoil because people turned to God and found that he was the answer to their social problems. And when they began to follow Jesus, they cleaned up their lives, and it cleaned up their social problems. Oh, sounds like a lesson we can learn today, doesn't it? Well, we want to turn our minds to God, and we want to learn from the experience of those people. And one of the things that, that John Wesley did was he encouraged the people that were part of the Methodist movement to every year at the first of the year to conduct and participate in a covenant service. This became the John Wesley Covenant Service. He wrote it up for his, for his um, people to follow, and, and they used it as a way to remind themselves of their of their commitments to God, remind themselves of their confessions of faith. It gave them an opportunity to, to pray and to 
talk to God in certain specific ways. It was a renewal of their commitments to God. You know, we shouldn't take that lightly, uh, that renewal of commitment. We want to talk about the benefits of following Jesus and of Christian faith, but what about the commitments? And, and then when you think about that, how do those commitments affect us? In other words, do we have certain ways that we understand how we relate to God? And when you think about it, it's really, really daunting for people, people like us, just regular folks like us, to think about relating to the God of the universe, the God who created heaven and earth. And, and we consider that the magnitude of that, the magnificence of that, the, the awesome greatness of that, the God who rules and reigns over all that we see and all that we can never see. And yet we, people like us, we relate to God who created everything. How do we relate to that God? How do we get along with him? Well, God's people learned something about that when they came out of Egypt because they met God there at Sinai, and they learned some things about how they needed to relate to him. And he told them where they were headed, the promised land, and he told them what he expected of them on the journey and how it would be a good thing for both of them. So we get an idea. They learned how to relate to God. How do we learn how to relate to God? And I think very close to that. Now, this is where, uh, you know, we pastors, we, we have to plunge in sometimes, and, and we hope people will not um, stop listening. Or more specifically, we hope people won't stop listening to God. Because really, you know, you don't have to listen to anything I say. But if God is speaking to you, you really need to listen. We all need to listen if God is speaking. And so one of, the, one of the things that I think God is beginning to say to his people these days, not just at our local church, but I think across certainly our nation, he's beginning to, to stir people to awareness of, of faithfulness to him, to discern the difference between those who would sort of follow God and those who are serious about it. And more specifically, I think God is beginning to turn our attention to, to a question we haven't asked for many years. Well, I guess we've asked it, but we've, we've kind of not wanted to think about it. But we need to think about it. We need, to, we need to think about this seriously. Do we have obligations to God? You know, we've heard a lot about, and I talk about grace, and that's wonderful. We hear a lot about the, the blessings of God, and that's terrific. Nobody wants to discount that. But in recent years, we haven't talked quite as much about or heard other people talk quite as much about our obligations to God. Now, do we have any obligations to God, or is, is it all about free grace because we say, well, grace is a gift, and we don't have to earn our salvation, and that's all true. None of us wants to fall into the trap of having to earn our salvation. We all understand that, that God has given us this great gift of grace, and he has given us salvation that we don't deserve, we don't earn. It's just remarkable when you think about that. Now, I wouldn't begin to challenge any of that. I don't, I don't think you would either. None of us would, because we understand the importance of that concept. But that's not the same as saying we have no obligations to God, because God offers us 
grace, because he gives us the gift of salvation, doesn't mean we don't have obligations to him. Now, that shouldn't be a strange idea, because we obligate ourselves in all kinds of ways. A lot of us have, maybe many of us now have, a car payment. We went in, we needed a car, we agreed on the price, we signed the papers, and now we have obligated ourselves to a couple things related to that car. Uh, mostly, got to make the payments, right? That's an obligation. We expect that. We accept that. We understand that. And some of us have had the wonderful fortune to be able to buy a house. And to buy a house, most of us have had to go in and sign the papers and agree to pay the mortgage payment every month without fail. And many times that's for an extended period of time, maybe 30 years. Well, that's a great benefit because once the house is paid for, it's a great way for us to, to have security in our lives, to provide for ourselves and our families what we need. And, and we happily take on that obligation because we see where it's going to lead us down the road. Simple things like cell phones. If you have a cell phone, you have signed up for some kind of plan with your provider, and you have agreed to pay them something every month for the privilege of using their cell phone plan so that you can communicate with your friends and family. That's an obligation. We, many of us have jobs. And so we have an obligation to our jobs. Uh, chief among them is we just need to show up, you know, and, and be there on time and ready to work. That's an obligation. So we understand obligations and we don't shrink from them, except, except, too many times, I, I just think that, that people want to have no obligations to God. They want God to give them everything that the Bible talks about as being a wonderful benefit of following Jesus, but they don't think they really need to be obligated to God for anything. And that's an unfortunate mistake that we make. You see, following Jesus is not something that we just do without obligation or something we do irresponsibly. Think about it. We use the term, the phrase, the expression, following Jesus. Inherent in that use of that word, following, is the sense that where Jesus goes, we're going to go too. So we have an obligation to follow in the direction he leads. And what that means is that we begin to pattern our lives after his life. That's an obligation we accept when we decide to follow Jesus. So obligations are not foreign to us, but sometimes we think that, that we can treat God differently. And, and I'm prone to say, and I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say it this way, but I often see it in actions and, and hear it in statements, just not said in these words. But people will will say, well, God will understand. We live under grace. God will understand. You know, I'm still looking in the Bible for the place that says God will understand when I want to do what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do. I'm still looking for the place in the Bible where it says I don't have to be obligated to following Jesus. You see, Jesus said when he introduced himself, he said, change your life and give allegiance to me. That's what he was saying in Mark chapter one. 
and inherit in the idea of change your life. Now, usually the word used, and most of you will maybe recognize this word, is repent. Repent. Well, repent means change your life. Uh, you, we get this idea that we just need to pray a prayer, and suddenly we're in, and God's okay with us because we're okay with God. Well, when it says repent and means change your life, it means we have an obligation to live life differently, and we give our allegiance to Jesus. It doesn't mean that we say to Jesus, well, you know how I really feel even though I'm doing this. No, not that at all. It means we actually do what it means to, that we should do when we follow Jesus. So how does all of this help us understand God and relating to God? Well, the first thing that, that, that I want us to understand is that we do have some obligations to God. Now, how do we relate to those obligations and understand those obligations and understand the dynamics of a relationship with God? Now, that's the interesting part. And I want us to look at Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to talk about what the events of Genesis chapter 15 a little bit, and, and some other things related that aren't in the text, but that we know historically. Because I'm convinced that the least understood concept in the Bible is the most beneficial concept for all of us. You know, we hear people talk about relating to God like you're part of God's family. And that's, that's fine. That's a good image. You know, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, the old song went. And, and I'm glad I am too. And I'm glad you are. I hope you are. And, and, and family has that kind of resonance with us that's different. And, and years ago, when I was a kid, you'd go to church and people would talk about brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. There was that family sense. And I still think people are very good friends and, and they understand that relationship as a family of God, as part of God's people. And, and that's all good. And we talk about being sons and daughters of the King, and that's all good because he is the King and we are his people. And it seems fair to call us sons and daughters, but all of those things, while they're helpful in their own way, they aren't the way that God chose to explain to us how we relate to him and how he relates to us. We use the word a lot, but we don't really explore it. And, and I'm kind of amazed. I thought for a long time I was just kooky. Well, some of you are going to say, yeah, you really are. Okay, put that aside. But I've thought for a long time that, that this idea of covenant, ever since I was introduced to it, made so much difference in understanding how we get along with God and truly understanding the Bible in so many ways. See, the Bible isn't intended to be a difficult book. Oh, yeah, it'll stretch you. Absolutely. It stretches me. It stretches all of us. And yes, there are things we have to wrestle with. And, and I wouldn't want a God that's small enough for me to get my arms around so easily. I want a God that's big and vast and big enough for what I need. So I don't expect the Bible to be just a simple, simple book. But at the same time, it wasn't given to us to confuse us. It was given to us to help us. And so we would understand God and know how to get along with God and know how to relate to God. That's why I say to people, when you read the Bible, find a Bible you can read and understand. Find an English translation that makes sense to you and use it. Yes, there are different ones, and yes, they were translated a little differently by philosophy and intent. And yes, I use different translations depending upon what I need in terms of my study and my approach to the Bible. And you might do that too. But 
if you're just getting started or you just haven't read a lot, find one that you understand. Because if you won't enjoy reading it, you won't read it. You'll just quit. So God gives us the Bible so we can understand. And he wants us to understand. And I, I want to help people understand. But the idea of covenant is the concept that fills in so many blanks all through the Bible in so many situations. You know, for example, we talk about the Old Testament being the Old Covenant and the New Testament being the New Covenant. And you remember the words of Jesus talking about a, a new covenant in my blood. Well, what does that mean? And sometimes people will say, well, the Old Covenant has passed away because we're under a new covenant. Well, really? Is that true? Or what does that mean? Or as I think, the New Covenant didn't mean the old one was passed away as much as it, the New Covenant, well, we talk about it in New Covenant, was completing what God started way back when. So we want to try to understand a little bit of that covenant idea today, because that will help us relate to God. And I'm going to think out loud with you a little bit, and we're just going to kind of talk our way through this and, and, and at least begin to get an idea. I would not be surprised that you have more questions than, than answers after this, and that's not all bad. I wouldn't be surprised if you're kind of intrigued by this and want to look further, and that, that would be fine. But we're going we're gonna to approach this idea of covenant because John Wesley says it's a good way to start the year, a re-understanding of covenant and a reaffirmation of our covenant relationship with God. And so we want to talk about what that means and how we understand our obligations to God in the sense of covenant. And as I talk about the covenant, we read some, some scripture together. You, you need to begin to think about how does that help you understand your responsibilities or your obligations to God. So I want to go to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 is, is the place where God approached Abram with some very specific things in mind and with really some remarkable events. I mean, you read this and, and it's just kind of like, whoa, what is this all about? Well, we're going to try to understand a little bit about what it's about, and at least at least uh, start to get you intrigued about it. Maybe you'll look into it some more, but at least we can begin to process what does it mean to be in covenant with God, and how does that inform our understanding of our responsibilities to God, our obligations to Him. So in Genesis chapter 15, and I'm reading from the New International Version, we read this. After this, and there was an incident that took place before then, that's not a worry. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Well, let's just stop there. That's the first three verses. So we understand a little bit. God is approaching Abram, and that's appropriate in a covenant. If you are the greater party, you initiate the covenant. It would be inappropriate for Abram to do that. But God, of course, is the greater uh, covenant partner, shall we say. And so he approaches Abram and, and begins the conversation. And, and, uh, and Abram said, I'm childless. I mean, really? Hello, God, you get this? See, in those days, children were very much valued, very much valued, and they should be today. Children are terrific, sadly. Sadly, it's a totally different subject, I know. 
but we have devalued children to our shame in our country, not only from abortion, but to other things. We have begun to think about children as being a problem instead of a promise. Instead of the fulfillment of a promise, we consider children in the way of what we want to do. And, and our own selfishness comes before children sometimes, and that shouldn't be. So Abram's saying, look, I have no children. A servant's going to inherit my household. Really, how can you, um, how can you think about this like this? Do not be afraid. I'm your shield. You're very great reward, but I don't have even a child, even an heir. Verse four, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, and here God is referring to Eliezer of Damascus, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the stars, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now that's a promise, isn't it? Here's a guy who has no children, and God is saying, you won't even be able to count them. They're like the stars. Now here's a pivotal verse, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, there are some really interesting verses in the Bible, aren't they? Uh, it's kind of like the guy said, I heard recently, he said, those are not verses that we would put on our refrigerators. So we're talking about some kind of sacrifice here. Now, people today get a little squeamish about this idea of sacrifice. And, and yeah, I guess we get a little squeamish, some of us, about the fact that Jesus died for sins. Uh, it's, it's serious stuff. I mean, serious stuff. And, and none of us really likes to contemplate that, that it was necessary for Jesus to die. We don't like to contemplate that, that animals would die as sacrifices for our sins. And I don't know what you do with that, but here's what I want to suggest you realize, because this is another area that I, I think we've just slipped on. You know, this idea of, of dying for sin, dying here in the case, we're going to get to this, of covenant, dying in the case of Jesus for sin, it should remind us how serious sin is. Sin is not something, well, we just laugh about and go on. Sin is not something we redefine because we don't like what God calls sin. Sin is not something that we just pretend will go away. Sin is serious, and God takes it seriously, and relating rightly to God, he takes very seriously. And that's part of what covenant is all about. So Abram brings the animals, and he uh, cut them in half, and he drives the carrion away, the prey that came down to feed on the carcasses. Verse 12, 
As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephamites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And that's through verse 21. So what's happening here is God has come down to Abram, offered to be his covenant partner, and they have conducted in chapter 15 a covenant ceremony, a ceremony to cut covenant, or we often say it was a blood covenant. Now, there again, the reason it's a blood covenant is because animals died. It required this covenant required the death of animals in the same way taking care of the sin of people required the death of Jesus. So it's a very serious thing that God, God takes very, very seriously. And so that's why we look at this and we, we have to understand what's going on here because God has, has introduced himself to Abram and has entered into covenant with Abram. And now Abram has a whole different way of relating to God. Yes, it includes some benefits because a covenant partnership had benefits for each covenant partner, but it also included some responsibilities, some obligations, because every such relationship required something of the partners. Now, we don't see in Genesis every step in a blood covenant ceremony. We know from history and from other sources that other things took place typically, but Abram and the people of this day would have understood what was going on just from this brief description. And indeed, this description contains some very critical information for us to understand, and, and we'll touch on that as we go along. But I want to take a look at the specific steps that are involved in a blood covenant, because these steps all had meaning and made a difference. So Let's just start with the first one. In a covenant ceremony, when two partners would, would agree to that, they, they did several things as part of the ceremony, and we're not going to get on all of them, but I want to highlight some of them so you'll begin to understand. First of all, they would meet and they would exchange outer gar garments. So one would give his robe to the other, and that gentleman would give his robe to, to his covenant partner. And the purpose of this was to, to symbolize and to show everyone that they were taking on each other's identities and they were combining their interests. And, and sometimes people will say they were confusing their identities. So, so if you saw your covenant partner out wearing your robe, someone might say, well, there it goes, and they would get it wrong, but then they would realize, oh, that's because they're in covenant partnership. 
And so the identities were, were blurred and thereby mingled because now instead of being two separate individuals, they and their households were covenant partners. And so that exchange of outer garments did that as well. They would also exchange belts. So one member of the covenant would give belt to the other, vice versa. And, and that would indicate that their possessions are now held mutually. So if I have a covenant partner, that means whatever that covenant partner owns is now mine. And whatever I own is now my covenant partners because we have our possessions held in common. So, you know, if I'm a little short one day, I can go to my covenant partner and say, hey, I need $50. And my covenant partner would open his wallet and say, take what you need. What's mine is yours. Or my covenant partner might come to me and say, I need $50. And I would reciprocate by opening my wallet and saying, take what you need. What mine, what's mine is yours. Okay, so now you begin to get the idea when we talk about possessions, some of the obligations that we have as covenant partners with God. And we need to take that seriously because when we enter into covenant with God, what's his is ours and what's ours is his. And we like the idea that we can have what he has. Uh, we're sometimes prone to be a little stingy when it comes to sharing with God what we have. So uh, along that line, I guess I should be real ornery and ask you, did you put your tithe in your church offering last week? Are you going to this week? Hey, that's covenant partnership, isn't it? Well, we're going to get a little deeper into that. You think that's deep enough? Well, we're going to get a little bit farther into this idea of covenant and talk about what it means to us and, and how we relate to God and how covenant teaches us how we relate to God. I hope you'll take a little break. Take a breath. We'll be back. Take it some more. Just a moment. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. If you go to HealthyCell.com, you can check out the technology, the products of Healthy Cell. These are very innovative products. They are a form of bio-nutraceuticals that are bioactive and they come in a variety of categories. One is daily essentials, which are the bioactive multi and the vegan essentials. And then the next category is performance. And this is the REM sleep supplement. I've talked about it a lot. I think it's very effective and I recommend it uh, for myself and for my family, but as well as my patients. I'm having great luck with this because it is such a terrific product with um, a blend of, I think is what's needed for not only promoting sleep, but also getting quality sleep. And when gets quality sleep, then there's restfulness and the next day is better and then the next night is better and it becomes a progressively positive cycle for the human body. And the next product in the performance category is focus and recall, focus and recall. And I think that is the featured product that um, is coming into play for those with long COVID and brain fog that develops after COVID-19, the respiratory infection, but also after COVID-19 vaccination. So go to HealthyCell.com and check out the products. And in the promotional code, use the term out loud for 20% off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio.
liberty and the pursuit of 2022 is upon us. Happy New Year, my fellow Americans. Well, for last year's words belong to last year's language, and next year's words await another voice. That's from T.S. Eliot. Here's to your voice being heard in the new year. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. I didn't scare away with my talk of covenant partnership and mutual sharing of possessions. Welcome back. I'm so glad you've chosen to to stay with us. We're talking about the concept of covenant. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we stretch each other's confidence in God because we want to develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I've been suggesting that a very little understood concept properly understood will help us understand so much more about the Bible than we ever imagined possible. And so we're talking about covenant. And we started in explaining a little bit what was going on in Genesis chapter 15, and that that was really God approaching Abram and entering into covenant with Abram. Then we started talking about some of the steps in a typical covenant ceremony. They aren't all spelled out in chapter 15 of Genesis, to be sure, but we understand that that people in this day and time, they would have known when they read this story what was going on. We have to work a little harder to understand because we don't have this concept in in our world. So we talked about how the covenant partners would get together and they'd exchange outer garments to confuse their identities so that they one looked like the other by virtue of, of exchanging their robes. We talked about how they would exchange their belts, and that was symbolizing that they held their possessions in common so that if one needed something, he was welcome to, to use it. If The other one needed something from his covenant partner. It was available to him because their possessions were now shared and held mutually. Now we get to the exchange of weapons. It's very interesting that in the covenant partnership ceremony, when they had a blood covenant, they would exchange weapons, and that symbolized an exchange of enemies. Your enemy is now mine. My enemy is now yours. And so the exchange of weapons symbolized that, that we had a new responsibility toward enemies, and we would have each other's back, so to speak, because of that exchange of weapons. That was part of the covenant. And then we recognize that in the covenant ceremony, there was this sacrificial cutting of animals, and we read about that in Genesis 15. And when they would cut these animals, they would lay the pieces open and then walk between the pieces that the participants in the covenant would each take a turn and they would walk a figure eight between and around the pieces of the animal that was sacrificed. It's called the walk of death. It symbolizes death itself. And, and it has overtones in, in the idea that if I violate this covenant, then I re- recognize that, that I'm subject to the death penalty. So it was a very significant statement. And it was a very definite, decisive demonstration of a merged relationship that was very, very seriously held and respected and honored. So they would walk in a figure eight between the pieces, and then each of the covenant participants would make a wound on their wrist, an evident wound, the blood would flow, 
and they would join wrists and sometimes tie them together for a period of time during the ceremony. And the blood mingling was a further demonstration that they were now covenant partners. And in some situations, they would even take, uh, I don't know about dirt or some other substance uh, and rub it in that wound on their wrist because they wanted to make a very evident scar so it was obvious, so that, that no one could miss that, that this, this man was in a covenant relationship with a partner. And their households were now joined together. And if you messed with one, you would have to answer to the other. And some people even said that the, um, and, and I guess this isn't provable, but the whole idea of waving at people when we see them has its vestiges in this idea of having a, a mark on the wrist because you would hold that up and people would see, oh, they have a covenant partner and they would respect that person in a different way. So they would have this evident wound on their wrist. And then there would be a period of time during the covenant ceremony when they would pronounce blessings and curses. And what that meant was they would, they would talk about the blessings and the benefits of this new relationship. And so one covenant partner would say, you're blessed because this, and you're blessed because of that, and you're blessed because of the other thing. And they would pronounce these, these blessings, these benefits of the covenant relationship. And then that same partner would then say, yes, you're blessed because of this partnership we're forming, but you're cursed if you violate the terms of the covenant and the agreements and what the covenant means. If you fail to support me when I have an enemy attack or some other violation of the terms of the covenant, then that would result in curses on you and your household. And they both took turns doing that. So one partner would say it to, to one, and then the other partner would reciprocate in pronouncing blessings and curses. It was a very significant thing. And so they knew that they had benefits from this blood covenant they were participating in, this covenant they were cutting. But they also knew there were curses to that covenant. And if they violated the terms of it, they were subject to those curses. Another step in the covenant ceremony was a covenant meal. And this is where they would sit, and, sit down and celebrate and, and rejoice over the covenant. It was a festive sort of occasion. It's similar to what we see at modern weddings when the bride and the groom will feed each other a piece of cake. That's a sort of reenactment of the covenant meal idea. Uh, it wasn't done exactly that way in ancient times. They would have a feast and a festival celebrating the idea of covenant. And, and in many respects, when Jesus gathered his men in the upper room, that was a covenant meal. That was a reminder of what was about to happen. And it was a demonstration of what they needed to do in remembrance of Jesus from that time on. It's why we celebrate Holy Communion. It's a covenant meal. It's a reminder that we have a covenant partner. His name is Jesus. And we have responsibilities to that covenant, the same as he has obligated himself to that covenant. Another step in the covenant ceremony was an exchange of names. And what that meant was that each of the covenant partners would take on the other's name or portions of it. It's a little bit like the, the hyphenated names we see these days, occasionally when people get married, that instead of just taking one name, they will each adopt 
a hyphenated version of their of their name. And that's a type of the exchange of names that took place in ancient times. Now, for Abram, that's very interesting. And for Sarah, that's very interesting because uh, it's both the same, but let's just talk about Abram. Abram, when he approaches this covenant ceremony, is called Abram. Later, Abraham is called Abraham. He becomes Abraham instead of Abram. And now we know him most commonly as Abraham. So what happened there? Well, that's an example of how Abram had God's name inserted into his name. And so now instead of Abram, he's Abraham. Now, what about the huh, the, the, the air that we use to pronounce the H, the Abraham? Well, it's real interesting that the scriptures talk about God in terms of the wind of the spirit. And so that's a little bit of a vestige of that idea of the, the wind of the spirit. Some people have also suggested it's a vestige of their reverence for the name of God. They would not pronounce the name of God. And in fact, the tetragrammaton that we have, that's a, a symbolic representation of, of God that we take out of the Old Testament and often pronounce Yahweh. For them, it was unpronounceable. And so it was more like just the huh, of Ham. So Abraham has now taken another step in this covenant idea where they've had, there's been an exchange of names and Abraham takes on the name of God. And now he's no longer Abram, but now he's Abraham. So you get the idea. There are a number of these kinds of steps and, and there's more to, to covenant than, than, than all of that. But let's, let's talk about some of the implications of that. So we talked about how this is a, a sacrificial ceremony where the animals were sacrificed and where they took specific time to point out that they were obligated to the terms of the covenant and that they not only were obligated to the terms, but they accepted the penalty, the penalty of death and the death of themselves to find meaning and identity in the other. So when we follow Jesus, it means we put aside ourselves and our identity and find our identity in Jesus. It's remarkable to me. It seems like inherent in the, the temptation to sin is that we want what we want, not what God wants. And when we enter into covenant, when we decide to follow Jesus, we are saying not what I want, but what our covenant partner Jesus wants. So we're understanding from this, this is one way we relate. We lose our identity and find our identity in him. And then we go forward following him. I also mentioned that there are terms of covenant. There are agreements, there are, there are obligations that took place and it's related to the blessings and curses idea. Well, if there's terms to the covenant, things that we have to live up to, how do we understand them in terms of our covenant relationship with God? Well, God renewed his covenant relationship with his people at Sinai after they came out of Egypt, and he gave them what we call the Ten Commandments. It was the beginning of what God gave as the law for his people to follow. 
and they considered that law a great blessing, and it was. And we need to recognize that what that law was, was a huge benefit and a huge concrete revelation of what God expected from his followers. So they followed Jesus. They followed God. We follow Jesus. We follow God based upon the law that God has given us. So we know the terms of the covenant that we need to live up to. And it's not a surprise when God says, don't steal. That's part of our responsibility under the covenant. Now, why is that such a good thing? Well, in ancient times, the, the people thought it was just wonderful that God had given them the law. And you can read that in the scriptures. Oh, how I love your law, the Bible says, more than one place. Well, why would people love law? Well, law was more than just what we think of it in terms of don't drive too fast or don't do other things that the law prohibits. The law was really understood as this is how we get along with God. And what a great benefit that is. And why is that so important? Because pagan people didn't know how to please their gods. See, God's people knew what it took to honor God because he told them. He spelled it out in the law. Pagan people were all the time putting themselves through terrible struggles and terrible things, and they did terrible things in an attempt to appease their gods. See, they didn't want their god to get mad at them, so they would do all of these things and make all of these extra efforts in order to appease the god so the god would be nice to them and wouldn't send bad things their way. Well, God's people didn't have that pressure at all because God had said, here's how to please me. And God says to us, here's how to please me. That's what the Bible does for us. In terms of the covenant, the Bible shows us how to please God. The question becomes, do we want to please God? And the covenant helps us understand that God obligates himself to us, and we obligate ourselves to God. We have the benefits of life as it was meant to be lived, and we have the responsibilities to change our life and to align our lives with the pattern that Jesus gives us so that we actually live out our lives in faithfulness to God. We actually live out what God has called us to become. It's covenant. We also understand, and we should make sure we notice this, maybe this is one more thing we can observe today, and maybe you'll start to notice other things in the scriptures as you go along with them. But Jesus gave his life and said he was providing a new covenant in his blood. See, we all know that, that the terms of the covenant as spelled out in the Bible are that we're not supposed to sin. Here's what we must do. Here's what we must not do. But we all know because of the experience of Adam and Eve that we all sinned. Bible tells us we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so something had to be done about that sin because we violated the covenant. We didn't do what we were supposed to. And you know what the penalty is when you violate the covenant? The penalty is death. And so along comes Jesus and says, I'm stepping up. Jesus, who lived a life without sin, said, I'm going to step up and step in. The Bible says God made him sin for us. And so Jesus died on the cross to take away the penalty of sin 
of how we had violated the covenant. But Jesus stepped in to represent us and take care of that penalty and pay the price. Some people say, well, why does Jesus have to die for our sin? That's the reason. It was because God and his justice, and because of the covenant agreement between God and Abraham, God and Abraham, between God and us, that we violated, we needed a way to make that right. And so God, in his kindness, sent Jesus to make that right. So that's a little bit of a picture of the covenant, a little bit of an overview idea of what it means to be in covenant relationship with God. There's a lot more to it. And um, I hope this will just begin to give you an idea to think about it so that you can think about how that affects your understanding of getting along with God, because so many things in the Bible will begin to make sense the more you understand this idea of covenant, because they have a reference to covenant all the way through all the way in so many ways. And this is just maybe giving you a beginning idea to, to whet your appetite for more. Well, it is the new year. And so as we close out our time together today, I was thinking about what the new year means. And, and I, maybe I told you one time that every week I write a letter and, and send it out to whoever asked for it, really, in my congregation. We send it out by email. We send a few in the regular U.S. mail. It's a letter. It's not particularly dramatic. It's the idea is that it's just another way we can encourage each other, another challenge. And sometimes it's uh, got a little humorous stuff to it. Sometimes it's got uh, more serious things. Sometimes it's a summary of something we talked about on Sunday. Well, I'm sending one out and I'm going to give you a sneak preview. Is that okay? This will be delivered to people on Tuesday. Most of our folks will get it in either in the mail or by email on Tuesday. But I was thinking, how do we, how do we get our thinking oriented to a new year? And one of the things I like is uh, what we used to call sentence sermons or quotes. So many of them just really communicate a lot to us. And uh, I wanted to share a little bit of what I put in that letter and, and give you something to think about. So the, most of these are from unknown author. In fact, there's only one that we know. And that comes from the scriptures. But uh, some of you are thinking about a diet, maybe. Oh, yeah, I had to bring that up. I know everybody's going to talk about diets this time of the year. But did you know the toughest part of dieting isn't watching what you eat? It's watching what your friends eat. Yeah, the toughest part of dieting isn't what you eat. It's watching what your friends eat. That's, that's really true. Uh, somebody said that uh, a mentor told them that to achieve inner peace is to finish what I start. So this person said, so far today, I finished two bags of M&Ms and a chocolate cake. I feel better already. Well, how about you? That's not exactly what we had in mind with dieting, but it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Uh, this one's really important. This one's more serious than the other two. And, and I hope you won't forget this one. Never doubt in the dark what God showed you in the light. You know, how many times do we begin to doubt when, when difficult times come? We begin to doubt what God has said to us. And we need to learn to never doubt in the dark times what God showed us in the light. See, that's the whole idea of developing absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Never doubt in the dark what God showed you 
in the light. How about this one? I like the way the, the author had this turn of phrase. He who kneels down to God can stand up to anybody. How about that? Yeah. How about that? If we, if we trust God, if we follow God, if we give our allegiance to God, then we can stand up to anybody about anything, anytime, because we know we have our identity is in him. Remember the covenant where we exchange garments? You know, God has given us a new garment and we gave him our old garment of sin. And he now, and we share a new identity. And so when we follow him, then we stand in a whole different place and we can stand up to anybody with that kind of courage, right? Right. Now, you always have to talk about sin if you're a pastor and you want to know about that too, right? Because what is sin? Now, remember, we're thinking about covenant here. Sin is when we violate the terms of the covenant. So if the covenant says don't steal and we steal, then that is sin and that's a violation of the terms of the covenant. That's what the Bible talks about when it talks about sin. If you want to understand relating to God, you understand that we have obligations under the covenant and that's to do what God says and to avoid what God says to avoid. And you probably heard parts of this one. I like this one a little bit better. Be sure your sins will find you. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, we usually say we'll find you out, but they'll find you. Ouch. And it hurts when your sins are exposed, aren't they? Yeah, it does. And I like this one. If you want to aspire to some, some greater things this new year, consider this. Do more than belong. Participate. Do more than care. Help. Do more than believe. Practice. Do more than be fair. Be kind. Do more than forgive. Forget. Do more than dream. Work. Doesn't that make a lot of sense? It's not about some vague aspiration. It's about applying ourselves in the way God leads us. And you know, I, I have a firm conviction that God gives us gifts of grace so that we can participate, we can help, we can practice, we can be kind, we can forget, and we can do the work that God has called us to. And 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 puts it this way. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And the key to that is that we use whatever gift that God has given us. I had a conversation with someone recently, and, and I was explaining how this concept of spiritual gifts helps me. And see, that's one of the blessings, if you think about the terms of the covenant, this is one of the blessings of the covenant that God has given us gifts of grace. And I said to this person, among all of the things that I could be doing, and sometimes have to neglect something that's important. I said, among all of these things, what I know is that I can be faithful to use the gifts God has given me and know that I have done what God expects of me. I can't do everything. There's some things I'm really bad at, a lot of things I'm really bad at. There's a few things I do pretty well, and those are the things that God has gifted me and helped me do, and I couldn't do them without that. I, I know that completely. I'd be lost if he hadn't helped me, but God has given me those gifts. So I use them 
And that's how I am a faithful steward of what God has given me. And that's how I know what to do. So when I say to you, do more, and I list these things, it's not an admonition that you're never going to do enough. It's an admonition to say, do what God has gifted you to do and focus on that because that's the way you'll please him and fulfill the terms of the covenant. And if you're thinking, well, yeah, so that's interesting. Maybe one of these days I'll get around to it. You've never heard anybody say that, have you? And along comes this wisdom from someone who said, one of these days is none of these days. And they are so right. I hope you have aspirations for something you might do sometime. There's nothing wrong with that. But I also hope that in this new year that you can begin to understand how to relate to God better. I hope covenant helps you. I hope you can use the gifts of grace God has given you. And I hope you'll begin to do that purposely and intentionally and not just say one of these days I'll get to it because one of these days is none of these days. But if you will, cooperating with God, apply yourself, you can make today the day and you can accomplish the purpose God has given you. And isn't that really what we want to do in this new year? Accomplish the purpose for which God has created us. Accomplish those things that God has in mind for us to accomplish and trust him with the future and walk into the future with him, confident that because he's with us, we can stand up to anybody. Well, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you being with us. I hope you have a really wonderful, happy new year. And I look forward to our conversation next week. I hope you'll join me again and we'll talk some more. Thank you.